the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Wednesday edition, uh, election, or excuse me, uh, almost election eve, but debate eve, final debate eve uh, edition of The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com. On social media, at Dan Prof Show, there's so many opportunities for President Trump, topic by topic, at tomorrow night's debate. One of them is going to be with respect to lockdown and bust policies that are a-scientific in orientation, evidence-free, actually run counter to the evidence, particularly as it comes to, as it uh, relates to schools. I I reference uh, Johan Gusecki, the former Swedish state epidemiologist, Writing in The Lancet on May 5th of this year, quote, a lockdown only pushes the severe cases into the future. It will not prevent them. Only pushes the severe cases into the future. It will not prevent them. And so think about that in the context of the reputed second wave and the premise that uh, that we start from if we are these lockdown politicians with respect to the second wave, what's the premise that we can eliminate the spread and that nothing short of zero will do other than uh, lower case numbers will provide gradual increases in liberty. And so in my home state of Illinois, in the Chicago metro area, there's a move by the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, to rescind the expansion of freedom that was provided just a several just well, just a couple of months ago because of the increase in cases. Don't care about the nature of the cases. Don't care who's infected. Don't care about the severity of the, the infection. Just care about the raw number of cases. Don't care about the distribution of cases where the outbreaks are happening. It turns out in the collar counties of Chicago, of Cook County in question, the supermajority of, of new cases, again, relates to long-term care facilities. A uh, single-digit fraction of the cases are, are relates to or trace back to restaurants or bars. Does that matter in terms of eliminating, re-eliminating indoor dining and uh, patronizing bars indoors in Chicago, in, in, in Chicago Metro? No, it does not. Mm-mm. What about schools? Yet another study out, this one from Brown University, uh, spearheaded by Brown University professor Emily Oster. Uh, her data covering 200,000 kids across 47 states for the last two weeks of September showed a COVID-19 case rate of 0.13% among students and 024 among staff. By comparison, the current overall U.S. case rate is 2.6%, an order of magnitude higher. Does that matter for those individuals? opening and closing the doors of 
uh, schools or businesses based strictly on uh, decontextualized raw case numbers? No, it does not. For more on all this, we'll pleased to be joined by somebody who's been writing about this for weeks as well. Carol Markowitz, she's a columnist at the New York Post. Carol, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So I, I we've talked before about uh, your kids and their education and what's mm-hmm. going on in New York and uh, with the, among family friends who have uh, school-age kids as well. And, and, and here we are with the same politicians doing the same things because yeah. they set precedents and they never provided uh, any consistently defined metrics that give you a path out of these lockdown policies. Right. And New York is seen as the success story. Our schools have allegedly opened, um, but they're very open on a very part-time basis. And what they're doing every time that they identify uh, even two cases is closing the school for two weeks. We can't live like this. This is not what other countries are doing. I've looked extensively at Europe, for example, and Nobody's doing this. Nobody is opening and closing schools. Nobody has any of these part-time, you know, blended models. They barely have any remote education component to their education right now. If you need to stay home, they can provide for you on Google Classroom, for example, some lessons. But they don't have a separate teacher teaching remotely um, where some percentage of the kids are home. It's just not a thing that they're doing. And I think we're doing it completely backward. I think this is a giant mistake, and I think we're going to regret this. We're going to come to regret what we've done here. Uh, meanwhile, I mean, in the, the the case study that couldn't be more diametrically opposed to uh, the case studies of New York or California or Chicago, Sweden is looking to ease restrictions for older people. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite a rise in the aggregate number of cases, Anders Tegnell, the uh, Swedish state epidemiologist, yeah. he wants to allow over 70s to live a bit more of a normal life. Send the same right. message about being careful and so on and so forth, but to easing restrictions on those over 70. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I also have written a lot about what we're doing in nursing homes right now and the way that um, a lot of states are not allowing visitors in nursing homes. And it's become a, a real issue and people are dying from loneliness. It's, it's a real thing that happens. Again, I think that our intense... Um, need to control it is just backfiring because we can't control this. This is a virus. It spread, um, I think, the quote that you said at the beginning of this, where we're just delaying, we're not stopping, um, is, is a real big part of it. And um, how, how did that get lost? See, yeah. You know, I mean, with two weeks mm-hmm. to slow the spread. I mean, that yeah. was that was, yeah. you know, it, it was never it was never offered that we could get this to zero, that we can eliminate the spread of the virus. Right. It was always about relative to our resources to take care of the infected. Yeah. It was never that this is going to be zeroed out absent herd immunity plus a vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, in March, I pushed for schools to close. Uh, it didn't make any sense to me that my husband had stopped going to work, but my kids were still going to school. And so I figured, let's keep the kids home for two weeks and see what happens and take it from there. Would I have ever pushed for schools to be closed if I knew they might just never open again? Mm. Uh, absolutely not. You know, and I think for a lot of people, the same consideration. I think we trusted to some extent that this would be a short-term thing, and now that we've gotten to where it has to, we have to go to zero cases before we can live again. I don't think anybody would ever do this again, and I, I think that the trust has been so broken. Um, on the other hand, I see such a follower mentality from so many people, from so many New Yorkers, where you know, Governor Cuomo is just keeping us safe. He's just closing the schools to keep us safe, even though they haven't had any cases. 
there's no such thing as somebody keeping you safe. That does not exist. We are living in, you know, fantasy land if we believe that any governor or any mayor or anybody can keep us safe from this virus. It's just pretend world. And uh, in California, there are new rules that have been mandatory rules that have been put forward by the uh, State Department of Health there regarding private mm-hmm. holiday gatherings. No more than right. th- no more than three households. The host should collect mm-hmm. the names and contact info of all attendees. All gatherings must be outdoors with guests limiting their time indoors. Seating six yeah. feet apart. Face coverings mandatory. Less sh- gatherings should be less two hours or less. So you're on the clock per the state uh, for mm-hmm. the time with your family at Thanksgiving or uh, over Christmas. I mean, it's right. remarkable. It's it's not easing. They're actually with a quote unquote second wave. They're using that as the predicate to come over the top with even more draconian measures. Yeah, but what's again, what's scary is where's the rebellion to this? Where are the people to say no? I won't stand for this. And I think about this a lot with schools. Like, um, I, I'm one of the few voices in New York arguing to open schools. Everybody's so they parse their language so carefully. Um, you know, when I see any other writer cover it for any other outlet, I'm so happy and I link it. And I, you know, I don't want to be the only one screaming into the void. But the other outlets are just so afraid to take a stand and say, this is what we have to do. We have to open schools. This is a must. They're afraid, you know, they're going to be called teacher killers or they're going to, you know, the union's going to come after them. And just the fear around speaking out is one of the scariest parts of this. Where are the people to say, no, I will have whoever I want in my home and the state can't tell me otherwise. Like, where, where is the uprising to this? Right. And, and I also think I get your reaction, this idea that, um, if Joe Biden wins on November four and November third, then November fourth, this all goes away. I don't think so. For exactly what you're describing, not only the mm-hmm, fear, mm-hmm. but it will be his victory would be a validation for everything that governors like Cuomo and Pritzker are doing. Right. Well, my column in yesterday's uh, New York Post was exactly on what would Joe Biden do? What will he do? And I think we're owed an answer. I, every time he's asked about it, he refers back to. An op-ed he wrote in January and how he knew this was coming. But the op-ed was pretty general, and it was about pandemics in general. And so, yeah, maybe he could even pat himself on the back that he saw this coming to some extent. But what does that mean for today? What does that mean for October? What will it mean for December and for January and for March? Um, I want to hear him say what he believes should happen with schools. It's not enough to just um, coast on the idea that, you know, Donald Trump did some things wrong, according to him. I think he needs to be able to answer what he would like to see happen and what changes a Joe Biden administration would bring to us in terms of COVID. And hopefully that's something that will be put to him tomorrow night's debate by either the moderator or the president, one of the two. Mm-hmm. Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post. Carol, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. on my own alone again. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Moving from lockdown policy, particularly as it relates to schools, where President Trump has an opportunity to explain real contrast frame a real choice for the electorate tomorrow night's debate uh, to matters with respect to energy independence and job creation. He also has an opportunity to really put Joe Biden on the spot 
and this is what he wants to do, succinctly and pleasantly, but decidedly put him on the spot. Because we find out that uh, Joe Biden was lying about an endorsement he received to cover lying about his position on fracking at last Thursday night's town hall with Clinton Foundation donor zero, George Stephanopoulos. Here's what uh, Joe Biden said in an exchange where he was gently, ever so gently pushed by Stephanopoulos over his flip-flop on fracking. A member of the Boilermakers Local 154, Sean Steffi, was quoted in the New York Times today saying, you can't have it both ways. He says you can't meet your goal to end fossil fuels without ending fracking. What do you say to people like Sean who doubt your denial because they think you want to keep that promise? Well, tell and the Boilermakers overwhelmingly endorsed me, okay? So the Boilermakers Union has endorsed me because I sat down with them and in great detail with the leadership exactly what I would do. Mm-hmm. The uh, Boilermakers Union endorsed me because I sat down with them. Well, it turns out that uh, neither of those things is true. John Hughes, who is a representative from the local 154 Boilermakers in uh, the Pittsburgh area on Fox and Friends. Well, we have uh, a lot to do with the petrochemical industry, the gas industry, uh, the new cracker plant being built in Beaver County. We have a lot of members working there. A lot of the new gas plants are involved with the fracking. So there's a good future here for our industry and it's good for the Pittsburgh area. And that's why some local chapters have, have endorsed Donald Trump, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Joe Biden has nothing in his green energy plan. The new green plan has nothing for the Boilermakers. Right. So we have to do what's best for our members. And we have un- you have unanimous support for Donald Trump from the Northeast area section of, of the states. Unanimous sor- support necessarily precludes any support for Joe Biden much less any endorsement. And another local 154 union official was on with Martha McCallum last evening saying the same thing. Never met with the campaign spin that he's referring to previous times he was endorsed by the Boilermakers. Well, there was no previous times. The International didn't make endorsements, according to the local 154 official. So, Joe, first you lied about, have been lying about your position on fracking vis-a-vis your position on the issue in the primary, vis-a-vis your actual platform, as uh, Mr. Hughes pointed out, which includes no consideration for fracking as you're down the path with uh, Bolshevik Bernie's Green New Deal. Now you're lying about an endorsement you didn't receive. And this is consistent with uh, Joe Biden, the fabulist, Joe Biden, who makes things up. And uh, since uh, President Trump is always the one fielding the accusation of lying, it would be nice for him to cogently and crisply lay this out for the viewing audience, just as he did yesterday in Erie, Pennsylvania, with his uh, Broadway play. I mean, this uh, with Joe Biden and his fabulism has all the markings of a Shakespearean comedy, actually, President Trump. Tonight, I want to uh, do something. I want to give you this is an original Donald Trump Broadway play. And I had it done specifically first time I've ever pulled it out. I had it done specifically for the people of Erie because you guys like energy. You like being energy independent. Do you like that? Energy? Because that's uh, We don't need all these faraway lands and everything else. We are now energy independent and we're going to keep it that way. Take a look at this clip. We had it made up and I think you'll like First time I've ever done this, right? First time. Go ahead. Wherever it is, put it up. Would there be any place for fossil fuels, including coal and fracking, in a Biden administration? 
No, we would, we would we would work it out. We would make sure it's eliminated and no more subsidies for either one of those. I guarantee you, we're going to end fossil fuel. No more, no new fracking. I'd gradually move away from fracking. And I think it's critically important on day one that we end any fossil fuel leases on public lands. Well, like what about say stopping fracking and stopping yeah. the pipeline infrastructure? Yeah, they want to do the same thing I want to do. They want to phase out fossil fuels, and we're going to phase out fossil fuels. There's no question I'm in favor of banning fracking. How many times does the Harris-Biden ticket have to say it for you to believe that that's their actual position, even though they're trying to recast it for the purposes of winning Pennsylvania in the general election? And President Trump needs to be facile enough to get back after Joe Biden if he tries to parse words, not that he'll be facile enough to do it. But Steve Malloy, a friend of the show, the uh, publisher of JunkScience.com, makes an excellent point how Biden will end fracking without formally a ban. You know, it's the backdoor ban, just like Obamacare is the backdoor takeover of health insurance. The backdoor ban on fracking and not a formal ban. You can't do it by executive order. What you do is through regulation. So, for example, if, uh, as you heard Kamala say, Outlaw drilling on federal lands, that would affect 8% of all U.S. oil production, 9% of gas production, 6% of natural gas liquids production. He's also, has Biden committed to reversing President Trump's deregulatory efforts, including the rollback of an Obama administration EPA rule regarding the oil and gas industry to pay to limit methane leaks from fracking wells. Big oil companies put uh, support the Obama rule because it puts the squeeze on smaller players. If the rule is, players, if the rule isn't reinstated, struggling independent fractors will e- frackers will either close up shop or sell themselves to larger companies whose profits have been harmed by a production glut. So the net net would be there would be less fracking and higher energy prices for consumers with the consolidation, the uh, elimination of competition. The rest of the Biden anti administration's anti fracking playbook would mimic the Obama administration's destruction of ninety four percent of the market value of the coal industry from 2011 to 2016. And Malloy goes through that. For example, the Obama Interior Department issued a rule prohibiting coal mining within a certain distance of streams, preventing underground miners from using efficient long-wall mining technology, dramatically raising operating costs. The Labor Department tightened dust standards in mines, further raising costs for underground coal miners. Another rule banned new coal plants unless they were built with non-existent technology to capture and store emissions. So, uh, as um, Malloy points out, It's not a ban per se, formally, but it's a ban by a thousand cuts. You know, meanwhile, uh, I'm sure Joe Biden will be enrolling all of those uh, out of work coal miners in coding classes so they can, you know, get real jobs and uh, join the digital economy with uh, all of Joe Biden's champagne socialist friends. The only hope, writes Malloy, the oil and gas industry would have in a Biden administration is that there is no substitute for fracking. Power plants can switch out of coal and into natural gas uh, during the 2010s, but they won't be able to switch out of natural gas and back into coal during the 2020s. So it is and it isn't clear the Biden administration uh, regulators care about uh, these realities. But nonetheless, that is a particular hurdle to even the most aggressive regulator. But make no mistake about uh, Biden's lies and the left's never ending backdoor place. And this dovetails right into what President Trump has done and did pre-COVID to deregulate and unleash the creative energies, particularly energy sector, achieving energy independence. This is a good thing. This is an area replete with opportunity for President Trump in the final debate in Nashville. If he seizes, he seizes it just so calm, methodical, succinct, pointed. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk to 
Matthew Boyle from uh, Breitbart News Network about another area replete with opportunity for President Trump at tomorrow night's debate. And that, are, of course, are the business dealings of Hunter Biden and the big guy. Stay tuned for that. I've got two tickets for paradise. Won't you pack your bags for leave tonight? I've got two tickets for paradise. I've got two tickets for paradise. Listen to the podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy was on CNN talking about the uh, alleged Hunter Biden laptop with the alleged Hunter Biden emails detailing the alleged Hunter Biden schemes, including an alleged scheme that includes an alleged big guy. The Russians this time around have decided to cultivate U.S. citizens as assets. They are attempting to try to spread their propaganda in the mainstream media rather than just relying on, you know, bots and Facebook posts as they largely were four years ago. Uh, and they've been successful. Uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani is effectively a Russian asset at this point. They have, uh, I, I think, um, you know, made some significant ground above and beyond what they were doing four years ago. I mean, to call somebody a traitor, that used to be a serious charge uh, made by a person who better have serious evidence to back it up. He's calling him a, a seditionist. The idea that we just uh, casually throw around accusations of treason is uh, really one of the remarkable features of our time, isn't it? Well, here's what he suggests is the reason we should uh, discount any discussion of these emails. It's all Russian disinformation. Consider the source. You don't have to consider the content. I mean, at some point, you sort of have to believe what you see, which is that when individuals who are either identified Russian agents or are conspiring with Russian agents are providing the information upon which mainstream media are reporting, um, you have to understand what the, what, the, what the deal is here. And again, I'm not alone here. 50 high-level intelligence agents, people who have worked in the intelligence agencies, came out and said um, that this is most likely Russian propaganda. That's not what they said. They said uh, this uh, has the indicia of a Russian disinformation campaign, although they have no evidence to back that claim, just like Chris Murphy has no evidence, just like the Democrats have had no evidence to back any of their claims with respect to collusion with the uh, enemies foreign by the Republican Party, by President Trump for four years. But that doesn't stop them from making their evidence free claims, does it? And this was the point that Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept made. Glenn Greenwald, no fan of President Trump, but he's no fan of the way that this is being handled. The questions that are not being asked because you're supposed to just dismiss the information that's been revealed because you dispute the source. Adam Schiff is seriously the most pathological liar in all of American politics that I have seen in all of my time covering politics and journalism. He just fabricates and accusations at the drop of a hat the way that other people change underwear. He's simply lying when he just asserts over and over that the Russians or the Kremlin are behind this story. He has no idea whether or not that's true. There's no evidence to support it. And what makes it so much worse is that the reason the Bidens aren't answering basic questions about this story basic questions like 
did Hunter Biden drop that laptop off at that repair shop? Are the emails authentic? Do you deny that they are? Do you claim any have been altered or any of them fabricated? Did you, in fact, meet with Burisma executives as these emails suggest? The reason that they don't answer any questions is because the media has signaled that they don't have to, that journalists will be attacked and vilified simply for asking. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Matthew Boyle, Washington political editor for Breitbart News Network. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, in addition to that, and we talked about Peter Schweitzer over the weekend on Sean Hannity's program, uh, made mention of the fact that he was given access to Bevan Cooney's emails, direct access by Bevan Cooney, who is one of Hunter Biden's business partners, now a convicted felon. He suggested that Schweitzer, a conversation with Hannity, that a story would be coming out this week from Schweitzer, the author of Clinton Cash, the author of Secret Empires. That would essentially detail uh, Hunter Biden and perhaps associates engaged in what it sounded like was money laundering on behalf of the former first lady of Moscow. Now, this is separate and distinct from the alleged Hunter Biden laptop, these this email access that Peter Schweitzer has. So now you have, you know, roads converging. And uh, I don't know if the FBI is anywhere to be found or not. Well, my colleague Peter Schweitzer here at Breitbart obtained 26,000 emails from Bevan Cooney, who, as you mentioned, is Hunter Biden's former business partner. He is currently serving a federal prison sentence for the work that he did that he and several other former Hunter Biden business partners were convicted on. We can confirm that last night he was moved from his cell out of safety concerns for him after he turned on the Biden family. We've published several reports already. One of them includes these details with regard to Elena Batterina in a longstanding deep financial relationship between the Bidens and the ex-wife of the former Moscow mayor. Other reports that we've already published from these emails. So we're still sifting through, uh, again, thousands and thousands of emails. We've only published less than a dozen of them. Uh, on Breitbart and in other places. Matt, let's uh, hold it there and uh, pick up on the uh, Biden's relationship with that uh, first lady, former first lady of Moscow, Batarina. More with Breitbart's Matthew Boyle when we come back. When the cool night brings back memories of a good life When this love was not so old The more you listen, the more you'll know This is this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Breitbart's Matthew Boyle talking about uh, Biden Inc.'s relationship with the wife of the former mayor of Moscow. And I uh, want to pick up on that. So what exactly do we understand the relationship between Hunter Biden and the other Bidens and Batarina to be or to have been such that she would confer three and a half million dollars to Hunter? So their relationship goes back several years longer and includes a lot more money. And that's in the emails that Peter uncovered on that front uh, with regard to Elena Batarina also detail how Hunter Biden and his partners were trying to set her up in the United States with various financial accounts. And remember, she's somebody that the Treasury Department and the U.S. government had concerns about. So them taking these steps to get her set up with U.S. financial 
channels uh, and investments were uh, particularly aggressive. But again, the fact is, is that they had a deep, longer relationship than ever been than that has ever been reported. I think the bigger story, though, in these Bevan Cooney emails is that, and this was the one that we ran last week, is that we uncovered that Hunter Biden and his business associates arranged for a, de- a delegation of Chinese elites connected deeply to the Chinese Communist Party to meet with senior officials during the Obama administration. He arranged these meetings for 30-plus different people, including a secret meeting never before reported with Joe Biden himself. These relationships later led to deep ties between Hunter Biden and the Chinese Communist Party. And the host of said delegation was this guy named Jeffrey Zients, who was then deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget during the Obama administration. Now Jeffrey Zients heads the Joe Biden transition team and is planning to staff the entire government if Joe Biden were elected. So it's proof positive that they intend to continue to engage in this corruption if Joe Biden were elected president. So if anybody out there votes for Joe Biden, you're voting for corruption, you're voting for the Chinese Communist Party running around the White House, you're voting for uh, these different uh, serious elements of corruption. We've also gone with stories that detail how Hunter Biden and his business associates, uh, we had a story yesterday with uh, these emails that detail how Hunter Biden and his business associates were pitching potential clients on how Hunter Biden was a, quote, direct administration pipeline. And they considered his access to his father and his ability to leverage his father's relationships with organizations like labor unions uh, to be, quote, the other currency. So in how they were doing that, there's many, many, many more stories on the way on this as we're sifting through these tens of thousands of emails. Is there any uh, other uh, emails or evidence that suggests uh, Joe Biden was benefiting directly, uh, like the quote unquote big guy email talking about uh, that Chinese energy deal where they were going to uh, uh, cut ostensibly Joe Biden for 10 percent of the equity stake. Well, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the text messages and emails that have come out from Hunter Biden's laptop that, you know, Rudy Giuliani has talked about that uh, have been reported in The New York Post, et cetera. Uh, seem to suggest that Joe Biden was personally benefiting from this. Uh, again, we haven't heard, as you guys played in your intro there, we have not heard uh, uh, the Biden team uh, denounce or challenge the authenticity of these uh, or the content of these and claim that any of them are fake or anything like that. Uh, so we have every reason to believe that, you know, five, six, seven days into this story, they are re- authentic because you would figure that the Democrat presidential nominee's campaign would challenge them if they weren't. Uh, in addition to that, the claims that this is uh, somehow Russian disinformation or something like that, the Department of Justice, the FBI, and the U.S. intelligence community are unified in belief that this is not Russian disinformation. Uh, and uh, we've re- had a number of stories on that over the past 24 hours. So the Democrat claims to the, to the contrary are pure desperation by uh, candidates uh, or by the members of a political party whose presidential candidate is in full meltdown right now. So uh, Chris Murphy and Adam Schiff and all those other characters claiming that are, are doing so in contravention of the facts, in contravention of what the intelligence community and FBI and Department of Justice believes. Uh, and uh, it does appear that there's every indication that federal and other law enforcement agencies are investigating the Bidens right now 
uh, because of the content of this laptop. So, Bevan Cooney, what, what else, what other areas of information uh, are uh, treasure troves provided by Bevan Cooney? I mean, there was this New York Post story yesterday, a picture of both Joe Biden and Hunter Biden posing with a uh, Kazakhstani oligarch who um, had uh, some, you know, dubious ties to a corrupt regime in Kazakhstan. And so it's just, you know, just an, another uh, pushpin on the map for the uh, the Biden self-dealing uh, enterprise, it would appear. But I, I don't where was Bevan Cooney involved and where was he where was he not in terms of uh, appreciating what kind of information he could have that's relevant to this entire discussion? Well, so Bevan Cooney was uh, somebody who kind of got roped up into this Hunter Valley universe through this guy named Devin Archer. So Devin Archer was kind of the main partner, right? Like, so Devin Archer was like the main guy. And he had all these other characters around that were uh, involved in the efforts. He's a guy, Bevan Cooney is a guy who ran a nightclub in Los Angeles. Uh, and then he started doing financial deals with these guys. Uh, and so we see throughout the course of his emails, uh, and again, we published a number of them already, um, but uh, we hope to publish more uh, in the, uh, later, uh, later today and in the coming days ahead. Um, uh, and, and then the goal is that we want to get as many of these out to the American public ahead of the election as possible. We literally just got access to them in the past week or so here. Uh, so we're, we're moving as fast as we can. And again, what, why, why does, why, many of them are personal. Why did, Bevin, so, why did Bevin Cooney break bad on Hunter Biden? Well, so he feels like he was the fall guy. So he feels like he was, uh, uh, to take the, took the fall for what the Biden family has been engaged in, in a level of corruption. So, I mean, he was convicted, uh, uh, after they were nailed on one of these financial deals that has to do with uh, Native American uh, fin- uh, you know, financial investments. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he feels like he, he got a, he got the, uh, you know, he understands that, you know, what he did was wrong on this front, uh, taking advantage of these investors. But uh, the, at the same time, he feels like, you know, he's the, he, did, he doesn't believe that he should be the only one to take the fall. Matthew Boyle, Washington political editor for Breitbart News Network. We'll look forward to more of those stories related to the Bevin Cooney emails that you and Peter Schweitzer have. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yep, thanks for having me. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And the uh, reporting is that uh, Jeffrey Tubin is going to survive his polishing the banister episode on that Zoom call. Uh, he's just too good on TV, uh, said one CNN insider that uh, they would uh, do anything more than suspend them. Well, on that note, uh, we here at the Dan Proff Show have been able to obtain some exclusive audio of Jeffrey Tubin on the aforesaid Zoom call with uh, his New Yorker colleagues. And, uh, and, and here's how that went. Oh, 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 God. Oh, yes, yes, yes. 
I'll have what she's having. And Jeffrey Tubin's voice a little higher than I remember. Uh, here's how his uh, New Yorker colleagues reacted to get a little audio of that uh, upon uh, realizing what Jeffrey Tubin was doing. <laughs> yeah, that sort of broke up the, the Zoom call, as one could understand. Uh, Gizmodo, uh, the uh, repository of uh, tech-related content, uh, has a handy-dandy PSA for us here, too, so you don't fall into the... Uh, Jeffrey Tubin trap there. Jeffrey Tubin, by the way, um, he was a degenerate and a slime bag well before this incident, too. For those of you who don't know, probably should be reminded that uh, he had an affair with Jeff Greenfield's daughter and a child out of wedlock with her while being married. He's still married. He also, uh, according to the reporting on the topic, attempted to pressure Jeff Greenfield's daughter into getting an abortion to cover up the affair, of course. So that's uh, that's your Jeffrey Tubin for you. Uh, but anyway, back to uh, Gizmodo, uh, how to uh, act, how to avoid accidentally showing your genitals to your colleagues on Zoom. You know, this is for mainly for Harvard Law grads like Jeffrey Tubin, but, you know, advice for other Ivy League grads as well, too, that don't possess any common sense, self-control, uh, sense of propriety. Uh, number one, consider avoiding having your junk out in the first place. You can't expose your genitals to a room full of colleagues if you take steps to ensure your genitals aren't visible to anyone at all. So one of the things you can do there is wear your pants properly. And uh, Gizmodo has some handy dandy etchings to show how one wears pants properly and one doesn't. Again, this is for your Ivy League graduates. Also, another handy dandy tip, pun intended. Consider exposing your genitals only outside of work hours and while not on a video meeting. Yes, timing. Context is everything. Uh, Also, make sure not to hang any photos of your naked body on the wall behind you. Uh, Gizmodo offers, no one's judging you for having six-foot prints of yourself sunbathing at a nudist colony near Saint-Tropez or hanging them on the wall in your home office. Uh, Of course. Just consider taking them down or at least face the camera away from them. And, And then also, too, for those who are less tech savvy, make sure you're not currently transmitting video or audio of yourself to coworkers over Zoom if um, you're uh, abusing yourself. You know, there is that uh, stop video button that you could deploy if uh, you feel like you can't keep your hands to yourself. So very handy, dandy tips. We appreciate that from Gizmodo. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com and social media at Dan Proft Show. This uh, next piece is from my uh, morning show in Chicago. It's a discussion with uh, a guy who tried to rally Illinois families to get the schools open, resume fall sports unsuccessfully, and he's moving from Chicago suburbs to Indiana. So it's a local story, but it has national implication. It's the difference between the approach of these deep blue lockdown and bust states with politicians playing lockdown whack-a-mole and states that are earnestly trying to reopen and resume something approaching normalcy, but with uh, some responsibility and accountability to constituents, to families in their state. So 
I wanted you to hear from Dave Ruggles because I think it has application no matter where you live in America. Did you catch uh, this story out of Australia? Medical professionals in South Australia are calling for urgent action this morning following shocking revelations about the deaths of four babies. The newborns were denied life-saving heart surgery because it wasn't available in Adelaide and they couldn't be transferred interstate because of travel restrictions. Adelaide is the only capital city in mainland Australia that doesn't have its own infant cardiac unit. As one obstetrician said yesterday, I shall leave it to you to imagine the profound effect of these deaths on the parents. Uh, What he didn't say was COVID-19 travel restrictions. Lives versus lives. That's what it's been from the beginning. That's what it continues to be, despite the sophistry of political hacks, whether at the local level or the federal level or the international level. Although I got to say, getting a lot more reason emanating from places like the WHO special envoy for COVID-19 than you are from politicians in Cook County and in Springfield. It's remarkable. So uh, lockdowners, what do you say to those four families in Australia? Because every death is one death too many. And we're supposed to do everything we can in order to save one life. So what do you say? This against the backdrop of new lockdowns in Chicago Metro in suburban communities because of increases in cases. Now, we're going to tell you what the distribution of those increases in cases are. We don't know the severity of those cases. But you know what? For the decision makers, it doesn't matter. They just care about having cases so they can continue their lockdown whack-a-mole policies to justify the last six months of lockdown whack-a-mole policies. That's what's actually happening until we're at the utopian position of zero, a number we cannot achieve, then anything they do to constrict your life or your livelihood is legitimate. And as long as they make enough people afraid, they'll get away with it. One person they're not getting away with it with is Dave Ruggles. He is a businessman and a uh, Wetonian, like myself, at least originally. He's uh, attempted to organize a Efforts to get schools back open, to get sports back online. Been unsuccessful, so uh, he's pulling up stakes and heading out to Indiana. He gave uh, an interview to WGN's morning show. Dave Ruggles, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, the decision to say, I don't have any more fight left in me, I'm out of time, it's uh, time to flip over to the Hoosier State. You know, it's just a different approach over there. And, you, you know, all the things that you guys have been talking about are exactly right. I mean, the positivity rate is a Bible phrase for the people in Illinois. And I think in Indiana, they glance at it and they look at hospitalizations, which really, to me, is the only metric at this point that matters is can we service the sick? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, positive cases are one factor, but it's a number that's got so many flaws to it. But really, it came down to do I want to be in a state that's going to cut and run and panic at the first sign of any trouble. And I didn't anticipate that Illinois would panic this quickly. I mean, I haven't even gotten out of town yet, but they're already panicking with the restaurants, like you said, in DuPage. And you turn around and you go across the border and you look at Indiana where we're moving to, you know, they limit the damage. They they get a case, they quarantine people that are within three feet of that person instead of six for 15 minutes. They take those people out of the equation, clean the room, and they proceed with school. And that's exactly the right approach. You heard the GN interview and all the comments afterwards, it's, oh, it's about basketball. That's all you hear, even though I, all I talked about was the school side of it. And my kid wants to be in school five days a week. You know, I have an academic All-American and a valedictorian and two high honors students in my house. Mm-hmm. Education 
is very important to my family. And socializing with other kids is very important. Being around coaches, being around teachers. My son would have survived e-learning here. I call it e-not-so-much learning. But what about the kids that are in the inner cities that aren't logging on at all, that aren't getting any of the services that are provided by schools, that aren't around mentors and that kind of thing? Those are the kids that are getting completely thrown under the bus here by a statistic that is really virtually meaningless. One, one other thing, though, too. I know it's not just about basketball, and you just detailed how it's not and how well your kids do academically. But my response to those people saying, oh, it's just about basketball for his kid. So what if it was? This is my kid. It's the value he gets from playing organized sports. So what is this dismissive attitude about my kid and his ability to play sports? I'm certainly not dismissive about your kids and their ability to play sports or extracurricular activities that they enjoy. That is part of the intellectual development of young people, for goodness sakes. That dismissive attitude, I know you talked about the layers of incompetence and cowardice, the indignant and dismissive attitude just drives me absolutely bonkers. It's remarkable how prevalent that is as well. You know, I mean, I've kept the politics somewhat out of this, but it's divided along political lines. It's an amazing approach to life. You know, I mean, it's exactly right. If I want my kid to go play basketball somewhere else, you know, then I should be able to do that. And how does it impact you? Because the problem is it makes them look bad. It shows that you can actually get up and do something that you're not a victim. And I'm not a victim. We're just never going to be victims in this household. So I've kind of used this metaphor to kind of explain there's the approach of if there was an active shooter in the room, do you hold your kid up as a shield or do you dive in front of your kid? The people who want the lockdowns and the continued punishment of our kids are the ones that would hold their kid up and hide behind them. You know, I'm the kind of guy that would dive in front of my kid, and I think most people are. I just cannot understand the mentality of let's punish the kids to protect a small subset of our society. You know, I don't want to see 80-year-olds die. I don't want to see anybody die from this thing. But I think if you ask the 80-year-olds, do you think the kids should sacrifice everything to protect you, or are you capable of protecting yourself, live their lives like you got to do? And I think that they would probably overwhelmingly support that approach. So, so you start to wonder who's driving these decisions. The people who are being protected probably aren't in favor of the approach of punishing the kids to do so. So why are we doing it? What, if anything, was the conversation with uh, his uh, soon-to-be former school, the administrators there, the other parents there? What what have your conversations been like uh, trying to drive some common-sense approaches to this? You know, I went to the board meeting, and I've never been to a board meeting in my life. And that's, you know, as I said when I got up there, that's that's on me, not on them. I mean, I don't I don't know who the board members are. I, that's why we're in the position we're in, honestly, because people like me don't pay enough attention to the local politics. You know, you get you go to the poll and you vote for the president, but you don't vote for the board member who actually might have a bigger influence on your personal situation. I just looked at these guys and I said, "You talk about wanting to open the schools, do it." And it's the same thing with Pritzker. You know, he talks about he wants the schools open. Well, then just do it. They point fingers at each other and everybody blames everyone else. I mean, Pritzker says it's up to the schools. The schools say they can't comply with the IDPH guidelines. The IDPH says they're just guidelines. So these three <laughs> headless horsemen yep. are, are blaming each other. And, and, and you know, and Pr- the, the irony is that Pritzker talks about Trump hasn't done a top-down approach and that's what put us in this position. Well, you're in position to say open the schools and they would do it if you did that and you won't do it. And the question is, J.B., why? And, and what was your uh, final straw? Was it when uh, the Big Ten reversed itself and most of the Midwestern governors who hadn't did as well except for ours? You know, yeah, I just looked around and I see a bunch of excuse makers in charge here. I, I don't think they have any resolve whatsoever at the academic level and the sports level. And what I'm doing is I'm just anticipating 
okay, I, anybody with a brain understands that the case count is going to go up as it gets cold. You know, I mean, we're going to get sick. People are going to get the flu. Everything is going to be attributed to COVID. How is the government going to react? In Indiana, my gamble is that they're going to say, let's continue to forge ahead here with in-person learning and sports. And in Illinois, I think it's going to be, you know, they've got one foot out the door and another one on a banana peel, Mm -hmm. you know. And, And so I'm just not going to be in a position where I'm sitting here you know, in you know, mid-December, waiting for basketball season to start, waiting for my kid to be able to go to school, and waiting for basically a, a circle of idiots to come to the right conclusion for once and advocate for the kids, which is what their job is. So it was kind of a cumulative thing for me. I just kept looking at the uh, situation. You know, obviously, like you mentioned, I was r- holding rallies, uh, you know, trying, trying to get everybody motivated to, to stand up and speak out. The fear in this state the, you know, and I called it the levels of incompetent cowardice. I mean, teachers and superintendents and, you know, just go right down the line. The government, the IHSA, I mean, these people are, are just, they're, they're just failing these kids. Well, you're right. Uh, we're going to have uh, one kind of revolution or another. It's either going to be the American Revolution or the French Revolution. It's uh, to be determined. Right. Dave Ruggles, businessman, parent of a, stu- a student who attends, attended, I guess now past tense, School in Wheaton, moving to Indiana. He's one of the organizers of the We Stand for Students rallies. Dave, thanks for joining us. Good luck in the Hoosier State. All right, thanks for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and how great was uh, Dave Ruggles? He provides the perfect segue to our next guest, talking about the realities on the ground, fiscal and COVID-related, between uh, deep blue states like Illinois and uh, red states like the one Dave Ruggles is moving to, Indiana. And that repeats itself throughout the nation. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jonathan Williams, Chief Economist and Executive VP of Policy at the American Legislative Exchange Council, Jonathan, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me back on. And uh, as always, greetings here from the land of make-believe in Washington. Yeah, there's uh, there's several other lands of make-believe around uh, across the fruited plains, as it were. But uh, Washington certainly is at the top of the list. And and uh, one of the things that um, all those lands of make-believe have in common is that uh, a Joe Biden victory means a bailout for all of those states that uh, are circling the drain financially right now, starting with New York and Illinois and California and Connecticut. Well, it sure is. I mean, you look at this chasm that we have between states today, uh, the rich states versus the poor states. What we do in following these 50 laboratories of democracy, I think it's, you know, probably more exciting this year and more consequential, all these policy decisions than than ever before. And of course, the states that get the policy decisions wrong now are coming out with their handout in Washington here asking for a massive federal bailout from federal taxpayers. And uh, it's very interesting to see how this has developed. I mean, thankfully, the fiscal conservatives in Congress uh, have been able to say thanks, but no thanks. We think it's a bad idea. We think it's bad for states, bad for federalism. And certainly in this era of 20 
seven trillion and counting of federal debt. We just don't have the money here to do this. I mean, this would be a China financed bailout of big, bad government states that are just overreacting. Well, and uh, you give uh, some good examples here of states that at the per capita spending level to do an apples to apples. And then let's think about how these various states are doing. You write that if uh, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker were to trim his state's per-resident spending to match that of Texas's, he would save his taxpayers $22 billion a year. That is a, a big number in a state with a $40 billion annual general revenue fund budget. And it just goes to the idea, well, Texas, well, geez, they have schools, they have police departments, they have fire departments, um, and they have a, a thriving business community, too, one of the things Illinois uh, increasingly does not. Um, so this idea that if, if you're not big spending the way that California, Illinois and New York spend, then you're not getting the quality of government services. You're not getting the quality of of uh, first responders and uh, and key quality of life deliverables from your government that uh, these small the, these uh, lower spending states are getting. And that just turns out not to be true. Well, that's right. And if that argument, I certainly get the argument a lot. And if that were true, then it's a value judgment and people can vote with their feet. And if they want big government and high quality services go here, if they want lower services and lower spending go there. But as it turns out, you look at Texas, you look at some of the other states that we mentioned, it's the lower per capita spending and the actual outcomes uh, and the services they provide, whether it's education or healthcare or transportation, are every bit as good, if not better, than many of the high-tax states. So then you have to really ask yourself the question of why is it that people would stick around? And then you look at the numbers and see 800,000-plus on that that have left Illinois even before this massive progressive income tax on the ballot here in a couple of weeks. And New York's lost more than a million. California's lost nearly a million. And people are voting uh, very strongly towards the model of government of being more free Google, keeping taxes lower, and then, of course, at the end of the day, even having quality government services. Yeah, I guess uh, they just, in, in Illinois, New York, California, the states that are hemorrhaging population, Connecticut, too, and I guess they just don't uh, realize the great value they're getting for the high taxes they pay. Uh, you know, perhaps a re-education is in order, something that I'm sure the Dem politicians are are willing to do. But, um, you know, that that really is the truest test is the migration patterns that you're describing. Here's the other thing, though, too, for all this uh, sort of wing and a prayer hope that not only does Biden win, but that uh, he can cobble together the necessary support for the sort of substantial bailouts that uh, these states require to keep their financial houses of cards standing. That, that is a no fait accompli. I mean, look, Illinois, according to Moody's, $400 billion in debt and unfunded pension and health care liabilities. Uh, uh, you know, there, there's no way Illinois is going to get e anything approximating the dollars they need, no matter who the president is, no matter who controls Congress. That's right. And I think it's just uh, how do you delay and allow progressive officials around Springfield, around Sacramento, around Albany to just continue to kick the can further down the road and buy them some extra time. And I think that's what this is all about, because you look at California and you look at their pension and debt issues, they're closer to possibly a trillion dollars in the hole. And there's no way that even with the Speaker Pelosi and a President Biden and a Senate Majority Leader Schumer, there's that kind of appetite to uh, send those type of dollars to states that have just made bad decisions and have, have kind of gotten stuck with this bloated, overly costly uh, form of government they've decided on. It seems to me that this is another case where a trend that was occurring pre-COVID has just been expedited because of COVID. So the trend was 
movement away from these big urban centers in, in big blue cities and big blue states to places like Florida and Texas. I mean, you know, the projection about who's picking up congressional seats and who's losing congressional seats speaks to that. And that was pre-COVID. And so it's just increased as uh, uh, those big blue city and uh, mayors and big blue state governors have just doubled down on their government-centric policies and are just driving people out quicker. Well, that's right. And my co-author, Steve Moore, who you know, uh, estimated that I think New York City alone has lost uh, well over 500,000 since March. And uh, so you have uh, employers saying, you know, here's liberal leave and work from home as as long as you'd like in places like Manhattan and Silicon Valley, some of the highest cost areas to live. And you don't blame those individuals for going and looking to find a better standard of living uh, during this situation and saving a whole lot of money in the process. So that does absolutely accelerate the loss from high-tax, high-cost-of-living states. And even before, Texas was slated to gain three new U.S. House districts. Florida was going to gain two, likely. And that actually may be totally scrambled at this point, but I do think it's going to be a very bad result for California and New York once we get to this final census count at the end of the year. As you look around uh, the states and their their competing reactions to COVID and the the relative fiscal discipline or lack thereof that's been exhibited, what are states some states that have uh, have done you know fairly good given the circumstances with respect to you know managing these exigencies? Yeah, it, uh, there's some bright spots. I don't want to be a doom and gloom because, you know, you look at in just this week, we put out a new report grading America's governors on their response to COVID and kind of the policy environment, uh, what they're doing to reduce the budget, let's say, and uh, tackle some of these uh, challenges that nobody could see coming. Uh, you look at some of these governors like Christy Nome in South Dakota has done a phenomenal job. Governor uh, Lee in Texas and uh, Tennessee, Governor Abbott in Texas, Governor Brian Kemp in, in Georgia, just a few that stand out as being phenomenal in terms of how they've tried to balance both public health needs and economic needs and get people back to their livelihoods in a safe way. And so, uh, yeah, there are a lot of good bright spots, and I totally think that those are the states that we'll be looking at, and Florida's included in that list, and so many that have been good for so long have elected some great leaders to navigate this really difficult time. And, and to be sure, I do not, I wouldn't want to be in anyone's shoes right now as a chief executive of a state. These are difficult times, but there are some great free market examples of governors that are prioritizing taxpayers. And it's easy to pick out those states with those leaders because they're the states that your friends are moving to. Jonathan Williams, Chief Economist, Executive VP of of Policy at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always good to be with you, my friend. Take care. Take care. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Returning to the matter of uh, Biden Inc. Uh, and uh, Glenn Greenwald's commentary on Tucker Carlson's show the other evening. I thought his uh, review of how the intelligence community has changed from engaging in propaganda campaigns in foreign lands to advance America's interests to engaging in propaganda campaigns domestically to advance their personal and political interests. It's a 
important distinction. The whole point of the intelligence community since the end of World War II was that whatever propaganda the CIA produces, whatever disinformation campaigns they engage in were never supposed to be directed domestically. That was the point of the NSA, right. That's the right. CIA, and all of those intelligence communities. And what we've seen since 2016, going back to the 2016 campaign, is incessant involvement in U.S. domestic politics, working with journalists to disseminate information purely for partisan ends. And if you want to talk about things like violating norms and dangerous to democracy, what is more dangerous than allowing the CIA constantly to be manipulating our politics by making cover for the Biden campaign by claiming anonymously that the Russians are behind the story and therefore you ought to disregard it. Even if the were even if the Russians were behind the story, why does that alleviate the responsibility of journalists to evaluate these emails and to examine whether or not Joe Biden actually engaged in misconduct? But the much bigger point is the way this this that this information is being disseminated. It is a union of journalists who have decided that their only goal is to defend and Joe Biden and elect him president of the United States, working with the CIA and the FBI and the NSA not to manipulate our adversaries or foreign governments, but to manipulate the American people for their own ends. It's been going on for four straight years now, and there's no sign of it stopping anytime soon. So on the one hand, there's what uh, the intelligence community is putting out to manipulate. And then there's what big tech is not allowing to be put out to manipulate. This piece by Soa Bramari the op-ed editor for the New York Post, uh, talking to uh, Facebook insiders about, uh, well, just who's in charge of these programs that uh, determine, for example, that uh, the New York Post reporting on Hunter and Joe Biden should be uh, downranked or prevented altogether. There are at least half a dozen Chinese nationals who are working on censorship, a former Facebook insider told Amari. At some point, uh, they thought, hey, we're going to get them H-1B visas, these Chinese nationals uh, who are experts in censorship, a lot of practice. It will get them H-1B visas so they can do our work. It's called hate speech engineering. Now, that's a uh, positively Orwellian term, isn't it? Most of its members are based at Facebook's offices in Seattle. Many have PhDs, and their work is extremely complex involving machine learning. What they don't do is a ban a, a specific pro-Trump hashtag, says one ex-Facebook insider. Instead, content that is a little too conservative, they'll downrank. You can't tell it's censored. And uh, Amari goes through some of the members of the hate speech engineering team at Facebook and their education, computer engineering from the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Beijing, somebody who earned a bachelor in computer science at Nanjing University in eastern China and so forth. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Adam Mill. Adam is a Kansas City, Missouri attorney specializing in labor, employment, and public administration law. The rule of law, what's that? Contributing to Contributor to the Federalist, American Greatness, and the Daily Caller. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Dan. Uh, what, what about that? I mean, just start with uh, the, what is, uh, what, the, the manipulation in terms of what's being put out by uh, intelligence agencies, uh, of all things, and the manipulation in terms of what's being prevented by big tech. Yeah, Dan, I think we have a couple of related stories here. The Biden bribery scandal is really just the catalyst for what is the real October surprise. When the real October surprise is, is that the mask on the big tech manipulation of the election has slipped away. Now people are actually very alarmed. Even some leftists and liberals are alarmed that there's this kind of centralized proctoring of what Americans are allowed to see and what they're allowed to hear. And, you know, of course, the Biden campaign has not disputed these emails. I mean, that's that's the astonishing thing. We have this very 
clear evidence trail that begins with Hunter Biden dropping off his laptop at a repair shop. He doesn't pay the bill. They produce the document of, that Hunter signed that where he said he agreed he abandoned the laptop if he didn't pay the bill. And uh, and they pulled the emails directly off of that. Well, the repairman had authority to look at the in the software and the contents of the laptop as part of the repair process. So those emails were given to the FBI and they ignored it. Uh, they attempted to give them to Congress. They ignored it. And so finally, they come out in the press in October and immediately big tech censors it using very Chinese-like explanations for the censorship, like, oh, it's it needs to be fact-checked and, oh, mm-hmm. uh, those emails might be hacked. Is that the standard now? Is it that if the information might be incorrect, the big tech gets to censor it? And where is that standard when it comes to Donald Trump stuff? Let's hold it right there. I want to pick up on the other side of the break, uh, the, our continuing discussion about big tech manipulation of the election, which is, as Adam Mill said, the real story. We'll be right back with Adam Mill, contributor to the Federalist, Am Greatness, and the Daily Caller. Right The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Adam Mill. He's a Kansas City, Missouri based attorney specializing in labor, employment, and public administration law. He's a contributor to the Federalist, American Greatness, and Greatness.com, and the Daily Caller. And before the break, we were discussing what uh, Adam's view is that the, the Biden bribery scandal. Uh, is just the predicate to the real October surprise, which is the that big tech's manipulation of the election and uh, in in uh, conjunction with some of the reporting by Sorb Amari at The New York Post, as well as Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept's observations about uh, the so-called deep state. Uh, and Adams, uh, let, let you pick it up from there. Yeah. And so I wanted to go back to um, a question that I kind of found myself asking. Um, what does it mean to have a free and fair election? Like almost all, every country in the world, even North Korea has elections. But what does it mean to have a free and fair election? And really, it's it's a, it's a bundle of criteria that you have to look at. It's been and, and I wrote a piece on this uh, a couple of days ago that you have to look at. And when you start looking at the criteria uh, and apply it to the American election, we have some problems. And so, I mean, I think you start with the press. The press has all gotten organized and they oppose uh, Trump. And this isn't something that you can infer. This is something The New York Times expressly wrote about in August of 2016. They wrote an editorial saying that uh, they had to rethink their their journalistic standards. Um, quoting, they said, it is uncomfortable and uncharted territory for every mainstream non-opinion journalist I've ever known and by normal standards untenable. So they said... Trump is a special case where you can't apply journalistic standards. And not only did the journal, journalism fall in line, the government fell in line. The FBI, the CIA, like practically everything within the, the incestuous CIA, um, Washington, D.C. Uh, bubble, they all, they all agreed that they need to set aside their rules of ethics and their, and their standards to do that. And so they've done some pretty incredible things. Then you add to that the fact that uh, big tech has essentially run normal journalism out of business, and the journalism that exists today is at the mercy of big tech uh, and whether or not they decide to monetize their platform. So, for instance, uh, a few weeks ago, The Federalist was forced to eliminate its comments section because Google didn't like how some of the comments were reading on their on their platform. It's pretty incredible. 
censorship. Hate speech so engineering, more hate, hate speech engineering, right? Right. So there's this kind of single intelligent force which is controlling what gets into the media and what doesn't. And we're finding more and more that these stories remind us of the old Soviet Pravda, where the facts are always reported with a spin, with a particular angle, with a particular agenda. And it, it's, you know, the stories would be almost laughable, but you can't escape from it. And in order to make that kind of propaganda work, you really have to crush alternate methods of reporting. And I'm remembering back, you remember when Bill Clinton um, had the affair with Monica Lewinsky, and it seemed like you couldn't get that story anywhere but like the Drudge Report. And then all of a sudden, it was everywhere because the more they tried to suppress it, the more they actually you know, caused you know, people to be interested in the story. But you move on to like there are other standards too. Like You're not supposed to use political violence to uh, affect the outcome of an election. But we've had people like you know, Bernal Trammell in uh, Milwaukee was murdered for displaying pro-Trump signs. Philip Anderson's an African-American and uh, was protesting peacefully. Uh, about about free speech outside of Twitter. He was beaten up by a white Antifa thug and, and hospitalized. Same protest, another Hispanic Trump supporter had his leg broken. Andy No has been hospitalized with grievous head injuries for covering Antifa. A woman who counter-protested in D.C. had her face beaten in by more left-wing mobs. In Denver, an entire Back the Blue protest was assaulted and driven away by a gang of Antifa BLM thugs. And of course, in Portland, Aaron Danielson was just murdered, was just flat out assassinated for being a, a pro-Trump supporter. So and, and just generally these riots in general were being told are being caused by Trump's rhetoric, which means speech justifies their violence. I mean, that's that makes that's what you do in Iran. That's what you do in, in Egypt to prevent the um, the opposition party from gaining traction. So and then so there's the big tech censorship. There's the there's the violence. There's ballot security, which is being relaxed way below, in my opinion, um, international standards. Uh, I mean, we've got a lot of problems with this election. Well, right, and but but just going back to big tech and the press to uh, zero in on that for a second. Uh, Holman Jenkins, writing the Wall Street Journal, suggests what we're actually seeing with this uh, Biden business dealings story is a laptop window on the oligarchy. Where that it's, it's you know it's it's not necessarily the the, the DC press corps genuflecting before big tech, although I'm sure they'd be happy to do so. It's them actually working in concert with one another. Jenkins writes of the uh, Hunter Biden business dealings that may or may not involve Joe Biden. Nothing may be illegal here. Voters can decide what to make of it, but it ought to register with you how cravenly some in the mainstream media are trying to convince you something isn't true that they know is true. The New York, the New York Post revelations are unlike many things you've seen reported as quote-unquote news lately. There is meticulous, transparent sourcing. The technician who ended up in possession of Hunter Biden's laptop is described in detail, now been identified by name, even outed himself. The named persons of Giuliani and Bannon vouched for how the data came into the Post's hands. Compare this to the vague, anonymous sourcing of so many Russian collusion stories of the New York Times mysteriously sourced tax return data, not tax returns, of Donald Trump. The, 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 the fact they're trying to convince you of something that isn't true, that they know uh, to, they're trying to convince you, I'm sorry, something isn't true that they know is true with respect to Biden. That that's sort of the Pravda piece that you are talking about. And this is where the old media outlets uh, are working hand in glove with big tech. Yeah, and I have a piece similar to the Wall Street Journal piece that you um, described. Uh, you know, I asked the question because this is really the question: Did Joe Biden take a bribe? 
uh, and what what we saw is not only um, is the Washington Post reporting, as you say, um, you know, producing original documents, which is never done on an attack. New York Post. These New are York just Post. rumors that are traded back and forth between anonymous sources. But also you have some Washington Post reporting that just came out that corroborates it. Uh, Hunter Biden is, is supposed to have said that the reason he took the bereavement deal is because he had to pay his family. He had to pay his mom and dad were out of money and they needed money, so he took the Burisma deal. Well, that that's a clear link of the Burisma money ending up in Joe Biden's pockets. So when Joe Biden intercedes to help um, Hunter's uh, Hunter's uh, 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 employer, he's acting as Hunter's subcontractor. Mm-hmm. He's taking money to do something that Burisma has asked Hunter to do, and then he turned around and did it. So I, I don't yeah. know how this isn't a bribery case. Adam Mill, Kansas City, Missouri-based attorney specializing in labor, employment, and public administration law, contributor to The Federalist, American Greatness, and The Daily Caller. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Dan. It's always a pleasure. You too. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Well, ACB is going for confirmation on Monday. This, according to uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, chop chop, uh, will be voting to confirm justice to be Barrett next Monday, meaning this Monday. I think it will be another signature accomplishment in our effort to put on the courts, the federal courts, men and women that believe in the quaint notion that maybe the job of a judge is to actually follow the law. It turns out, uh, despite uh, their uh, best efforts, Democrat socialists and their D.C. press corps handmaidens, 51 percent of Americans, a slim but a majority nonetheless, support the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to fill the vacancy left by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. So it's narrow, but it's um, a majority nonetheless, given the onslaught. Suppose it speaks to the quality of her confirmation hearing, her presentation and responses to the silliness of so many Democrat socialists during the uh, confirmation hearing last week. Jared Baker, or Gerard Baker, excuse me, uh, reading the Wall Street Journal, I think has a salient point in her personality and character as much as in her philosophy. ACB could prove to be a model for a post-Trumpian conservatism. One that marries the remarkable achievements for conservatives this president has secured in office, like the elevation of the ACBs and the Kavanaugh's and the Gorsuch's, with a set of values and a rhetoric better suited to sustain those achievements. Yes, um, maybe uh, Trump can even provide a better model of post-Trumpian conservatism, because even in Victorious, who are going to be looking ahead uh, starting tomorrow night, that would be eminently helpful. Now, not everybody is on board, as I said, 51 percent majority, but a narrow one. So, for example, these lovely ladies who accosted who accosted uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham at the airport. Look me in the eye. Are Where you are you trying? from? Where are you what? from? I'm from Seattle, Washington, and I'm not here to talk to you. I'm not here to talk to anybody. Why does it matter listen? where she's from? She's an American. Well, I think Seattle's a good making conversation. You know, out of control. Sir, you're an example of how things are getting out of control, sir. Senator Tillis, you want for me, sir? I pay your salary, sir. Where are you from? It doesn't matter where I'm from. I'm from the United States of America, sir. Where are you from? You sure are. And you're going to make my children 
my daughter, who stood on the shoulders of giants, you're going to take her rights away by voting for this woman who's a racist? Well, I'm enthusiastically going to support Judge Barrett. She's a racist. Why? He's Why? She's highly qualified. She's not. Yeah, ACB's a racist. Uh, don't believe the uh, thinly veiled ruse of the two adopted Haitian children uh, she's raising as her own in her brood of seven. Oh, sure. That's just a, a misdirection play she's been setting up all these years for this moment. It, it is um, these shrill, hate has no home here, champagne socialist, sentimental barbarians that is in part why 51% of Americans support the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett because they just can't be on that side. They can't stand with those individuals, people who behave like that, the quality of the intellect displayed there and uh, sleep at night. I understand it. I also think that's why President Trump is going to enjoy a slim majority of electoral votes on November 3rd. This is Dan Proud. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Oh, the rule of law is still very much on the ballot on November 3rd. The uh, D.C. press corps not interested in covering matters like this North Carolina police officer who was beaten during a live Facebook, a Facebook live video while onlookers laughed and cheered the attacker. The officer had to be airlifted after the uh, fight had completed and the individual was taken into custody when he got to back up had to be uh, airlifted out of the situation. He was beaten up badly with onlookers cheering. Uh, I don't know who cheers anybody being beaten up, but that's where we're at. Where we're at is uh, turning our uh, attention to the musings of Colin Kaepernick, uh, Nike's $100 million man, writing in Medium. Oh, he's got a new deal, too. Like Patrice Cullors, the Marxist co-founder of Black Lives Matter, the Marxist organization. She's got a deal with Warner Brothers to produce programming, you know, like the Obama deal with Netflix, like the Kaepernick deal with Medium. Abolition for the People, the movement for a future without policing and prisons is a partnership between Kaepernick Publishing and the Medium publication level that builds on a rich tradition of black organizing and freedom fighting. Over the next four weeks, we will publish 30 essays from what he terms political prisoners, grassroots organizers, movement leaders, scholars, family members of those affected by the anti-black state violence and terrorism. Each week, we will bring a collection centered around a different theme, police and policing, prisons and carcerality, F reform, not F reform, meaning as in frack reform, no such thing as reform, because what do we want? Abolition. When do we want it? Now. Abolition of police and of prisons, too. The central intent of policing is to surveil, terrorize, capture and kill marginalized populations, specifically black folks. Those are the words of Colin Kaepernick. Those are your words? That the view of the majority of black Americans, not according to the polling. He wants it all to go because he has a vision for brave new world. Another world is possible, writes Kaepernick, a world grounded in love, justice and accountability, a world grounded in safety and good health, a world grounded in meeting the needs of the people. 
boy, uh, he could be a congressman from the Bronx with that kind of sentimental pablum. Oh, meanwhile, back in the real world, Chop Zone businesses in Seattle, 21 of them, have filed a lawsuit against Seattle for not providing police to protect their property and persons. Minneapolis residents are suing the city council for a lack of police, blaming the defund police movement for the violence in Minneapolis. Back in the real world, the uh, utopian vision of Colin Kaepernick doesn't have much currency. I hope it's an issue that President Trump brings up tomorrow night because, you know, it won't be asked by the fungible MSNBC correspondent that's moderating. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend, Lieutenant Colonel Ollie North, combat decorated U.S. Marine, number one bestselling author and former president of the NRA. He's got a new book, Veterans Lament. Is this the America our heroes fought for? Colonel North, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Dan, thank you very much. All the issues you just raised were brought up by the veterans David and I interviewed for this book. And they're asking the question, is this the America that we fought for? In other words, turning away from our moral roots to secular humanism and relativism and political correctness, uh, the destruction of our first and second and third and fourth and fifth, all the way to the ninth and tenth amendments in our Bill of Rights. Those are the kinds of things that the respondents who are quoted in this book were proud to raise as issues. And so you look at what these experienced veterans have to say about the country that they fought for, bled for, and came home to, and they're saying, what the heck has happened? Yeah, This is a book for the future. It's not about the past. It's about the future. And, and I hasten to add, and I'm sure many of those veterans you spoke with did as well, that we absolutely fought for the right of Kellen Kaepernick to say whatever silliness he wants to say. Sure. That's not the absolutely. issue. The issue is adopting it as public policy. That's the rub here, right, in 21st century America. Indeed it is, brother. On top of that, I mean, this isn't just Democrats. This is the very far left in the framework you just described, becoming policy across the board in this country. That's what's up for, up for grabs here in two weeks. And when you look at it, if you've got a veteran in your family, get them a copy of Veterans Lament because it describes what's happening, just as you listed it, on some of those issues. All the ones that are in this book are the consequence of people who served, put their lives on the line. And my hero is a person who puts themselves at risk for the benefit of others. Not by looting, not by burning, not by anarchy becoming vandals, but by doing what we do best. We change things at the ballot box. And Lord, I hope that we're going to do that in this election. Unfortunately, uh, national security has been relegated to a relatively small part of tomorrow night's presidential debate. But nonetheless, the president can uh, insinuate uh, his record uh, on matters foreign and national security related uh, as much as he wants. And it seems to me, and it'd be interesting to get the perspective of the veterans, you know, his principled realism has increased the peace around the globe, and that's good news for military men and women. And you look at the kinds of things that he's done, both domestically and internationally, to make America a safer place. The possibilities of war have diminished because of his willingness to use our military in cogent means, bring home the troops that are fighting the longest war in American history, Get those folks back to this country. Use special operations the way they're best meant to do. And al-Baghdadi and, and Soleimani are evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of things that this country needs to be able to do, and he does it well. This is not a president that varies even by an inch from what he promised to do for our country, both domestically and internationally. Moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, a brilliant move. The peace accord that he negotiated with the help of others and allies between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. All of those kinds of things make America a safer place. It makes us less vulnerable to international intrigues 
the likes of which the Russians, the Soviets, and particularly the Chinese are waging against us day in and day out. They're all hoping desperately that Joe Biden gets elected president. In uh, your discussions with veterans for your book, Veterans Lament, what's their take on what they've seen from the intelligence community over the last uh, four years? Uh, I'm talking about the CIA. I'm talking about the National Security Council, the previous administration, to frankly, some of the holdovers in this administration, as well as the FBI. I mean, if you're a, a military man or woman, you're a person who believes in the rule of law, not the rule of men. And what have we seen from our top law enforcement and intel agencies? And, of course, there's a bunch of these guys and gals that we interviewed for this who came out of the intelligence community. They're appalled at what the previous administration, the Obama-Biden administration, did against American citizens. Look at poor Carter Page. I mean, look at the fact that they were using the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to spy on American citizens under the false pretenses that the Russians were controlling the Trump campaign. It's horrific what they've done to it. We're still paying the price for it four years afterwards. The sad fact is the last administration destroyed the opportunities for America to advance. They declared essentially with Secretary of State John Kerry that we ought to make sure that, one, the Iranians get nuclear weapons, number two, that Israel is permanently disabled from being able to defend itself, and the unwillingness to do the right kinds of things in dealing with all of the various threats posed by Russia, Iran, North Korea, and China. Do any of the folks that you spoke with believe this story that has been continues to be pushed, frankly, because that's what the D.C. press corps does, that uh, President Trump uh, ridiculed and otherwise denigrated members of the military? Absolutely not. You know, I got a lot of calls on that when it first broke. And that's one of the reasons why we have over 300 senior flag officers, far more than the left, has recruited as, quote, veterans for Biden. What we've got out here is a recognition that they've weaponized the intelligence services of this country with people that the president accurately describes as part of the swamp. On almost every issue, they've weaponized the intelligence community and to the extent they could, the American military, to destroy this presidency. These folks see that kind of thing happening. And Lord willing, we're going to do the right thing here in two weeks because I'm hoping we continue this with this commander in chief blatantly. Uh, as a former president of the NRA, I have to get a comment on Second Amendment rights and the threat they face under a Biden presidency. You're talking to a guy who's here in Virginia where our nutcase governor, <laughs> Northam, is a gun-grabbing, baby-killing, race-baiter. Let's start with that. And he's taken the state in totally the wrong direction. He's got a legislature that backs him. He's taken the Second Amendment and made it almost impossible for somebody to take and use a firearm to protect themselves. It's tough to find a place to buy ammunition in this state. The American people know, most of us, that the Second Amendment is the, is the last recourse from tyranny. That's what it's there for. It's not there to let people hunt. It's there to make sure that Americans have the means of protecting themselves against tyranny. And tyranny is what we're going to get from the far left. It won't just be Kaepernick. It's going to be all these folks who want to take up arms against our government, who want to defund the police, who want to make sure that we can't enforce the laws of this country. What Americans ought to be saying is, who is better equipped, who is better politically to protect our civil liberties that are right there in that Bill of Rights? The Second Amendment being one of the most important ones. He is Lieutenant Colonel Ali North, combat decorated U.S. Marine, number one best-selling author, former president of the NRA. His new book, pick it up, Veterans Lament, Is This the America Our Heroes Fought For? Colonel North, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Dan, thank you very much. Semper Fi. You can't go wrong Thinking Nothing's wrong 
Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show and uh, flying off our conversation with uh, Colonel Oliver North in part, the Kaepernick part, the uh, identitarian politics part. I've got some good news and I've got some bad news when it comes to critical race theory, the religion of the uh, race identitarians trying to establish a new racial order, a power uh, conferred based on one's race, non-behavioral characteristic. What do you mean? Should I start with the bad news first? Yeah, bad news. Bad news comes from corporate America. Vaseline. Yes, Vaseline. They've got a new ad, the Vaseline company. Take a listen. To my beautiful black baby, you're being born into a country with history, a history of violence against your skin, where you still have to fight for the care you need. But this moment is a reckoning to change the story of skin. While you're being born, America is being reborn. We're on a 400-year-long journey, and scars don't fade. But neither does hope. Equity in skin care is the tag on that piece. Equity in skin care. And uh, the way you achieve equity in skin care is by, one, hating America, and two, buying Vaseline, apparently. This is an indication of the mentality that persists in C-suites and Fortune 1000 companies in America. Okay, now some good news. How about some good news? And uh, this is a twofer, threefer, really, because uh, they're friends, Shelby Steele and Eli Steele, the great Shelby Steele, and, and Eli Steele, who put together this documentary, What Killed Michael Brown, that was originally going to be streamed on Amazon. And then Amazon took it down because it didn't meet Amazon's (laughs) <laughs> robust quality standards. And that uh, generated uh, a number of op-eds from Jason Riley at the Wall Street Journal to Rod Dreher to others uh, in defense of Shelby Steele, who's, I mean, he's a former professor at San Jose State. He's at the Hoover Institution. He's a national book club award, uh, national uh, book winner. I mean, literary, won a number of literary prizes for white guilt and uh, just written a number of great books, columns, et cetera. I mean, this is a deep intellect, as I've said, probably the most important intellect on race and culture in the last half century. Certainly, uh, uh, you can count uh, those uh, to be included with that descriptor on on one hand, and Shelby Steele is among them. Well, um, they sent a cease and desist when Amazon tried to slough this off and say, oh, it was an accident by, you know, one of our hate speech engineers or minders or functionaries. Uh, And uh, the Steels were having none of it. No, no, this was purposeful. The message was unmistakable. And you said it was also unreviewable. So there was clearly malice aforethought. So you're going to apologize to us uh, and own up to what you did if you want to reverse course amid the public excoriation of Amazon Prime. Well, guess what? Dear all, good news to report. The film has done extremely well since its launch last Friday, but that's not the good news for today. Eli Steele, the documentarian, the director of the film, writing. 
Amazon reached out to me this afternoon and we had a positive exchange of emails. I prefer emails to the phone due to my deafness. Apparently, we had an uninvited third party that interfered on my behalf, unbeknownst to me, that caused confusion. So it was good to communicate with them directly. I listened to their side. They listened to mine. They acknowledged what happened and they said they would work to improve and prevent incidents like this one from happening again. Given today's volatile culture war, I believe this was a positive step. They will have this experience on their minds going forward and one hopes they will improve their policy so that all American perspectives are included. They certainly did not have have to reach out, but they did. And that gesture is meaningful. I do want to thank the writers at Wall Street Journal, Fox News, National Review, many other places for writing about this. Without this publicity, we likely would never have reached this resolution. So I'm very happy I can finally announce officially that our very well-received documentary, What Killed Michael Brown, is now on the Amazon Prime platform. The film will continue to play on Vimeo as well. So, uh, you know, Vimeo or Amazon Prime, you choose. Go check out What Killed Michael Brown, which is an excellent documentary, as you would expect from uh, Shelby and Eli Steele. You should also check out Eli Steele's documentary, which I mentioned before on this show, How Jack Became Black, about his son enrolling in the L.A. school district. Also very good. But it just shows you, you know, there there is some power here when people stand up and make their voices heard. And also when people like the Steels say, no, you're not going to run that game on me. We're going to hold you to account for the decision you made and the basis of it. Now, if you want to change your decision, that's fine. But you're going to own the decision you made. And that's what happened. There's a blow. Positive blow. Uh, here's another one. And this comes from a bit of an unlikely place, uh, given her title. The uh, woman I'm speaking of is uh, the Minister of Equities. Excuse me, Minister of, of Equalities in the UK. Kemi Badnock is her name. The Minister of Equalities, uh, again with the Orwellian titles in the West. And uh, she uh, uh, spoke to British Parliament about critical race theory. And listen to what she had to say. It's going to surprise you. I told you this is the good news. What we are against is the teaching of contested political ideas as if they are accepted facts. We don't do this with communism. We don't do this with socialism. We don't do it with capitalism. And I want to speak about a dangerous trend in race relations that has come far too close to home to my life. And it is the promotion of critical race theory, an ideology that sees my blackness as victimhood and their whiteness as oppression. I want to be absolutely clear, this government stands unequivocally against critical race theory. Some schools have decided to openly support the anti-capitalist Black Lives Matter group, often fully aware that they have a statutory duty to be politically impartial. Black lives do matter, of course they do. But we know that the Black Lives Matter movement, capital B-L-M, is political. I know this because at the height of the protest, I have been told of white Black Lives Matter protesters calling, and I'm afraid uh, I apologize for saying this word, calling a black armed police officer guarding Downing Street a pet That is why we do not endorse that movement in, on this side of the House. It is a political movement, and what would be nice would be for members on the opposite side to condemn many of the actions that we see this political movement instead of pretending that it is a completely wholesome uh, anti-racist organization. There is a lot of pernicious stuff that is being pushed, and we stand against that. We do not want to see teachers teaching their white pupils about white privilege and inherited yeah. racial guilt. And let me be clear, any school which teaches these elements of critical race theory as fact, or which promotes partisan political views such as defunding the police without offering a balanced treatment of opposing views is breaking the law. Wow. 
Um, if only we could import uh, Ms. Badnick here to address uh, Congress the way she addressed the British Parliament. What do you say? Uh, maybe uh, also address the D.C. press corps. Start with Chris Wallace, who finds critical race theory and instruction on it and uh, mandated uh, sensitivity training in the federal in federal offices. Remember, this was a part of the row uh, in the first presidential debate. Chris Wallace finds it partic- perfectly innocuous. It's not perfectly innocuous. It's perfectly pernicious. It's per- perfectly destructive. And Miss Badnock has it exactly right. So uh, put that in your back pocket anytime you uh, need a dissertation on critical race theory when somebody wants to tell you. It's just about uh, respecting people who are different from us. It's just about appreciating black and brown people and people of color. No, it's not. No, it's not. And you just heard it from a black woman in the U.K., the Minister of Equalities of all people. This is Dan Proft. Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble. And if I stay, it will be Listen to the podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, the matter of civil liberties in the era of COVID. The respect for civil liberties. And I'm not just talking about uh, the government's respect for their citizens' civil liberties. I'm talking about the citizens' respect for their own civil liberties. A uh, working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research. Using cross-country representative surveys that cover 15 countries, more than 370,000 respondents, the researchers study the extent to which citizens are willing to uh, horse-tray their civil liberties for security, essentially. Four main results. Although, uh, many around the world uh, reveal a clear willingness to tr- make that trade, civil liberties for improved public health conditions. In other words, f- uh, safety for freedom, or freedom for safety. You get the point. Second, consistent across countries, exposure to health risks is associated with citizens' greater willingness to trade away their civil liberties. Though individuals who are more economically disadvantaged are less willing to do so. That's interesting. Why? Because they get hammered the hardest, as we're seeing and as they know. Third, attitudes concerning such trade-offs are elastic to information. Move around, as you're seeing frustration from people who are initially supportive of lockdowns in this country. Fourth, gradual decline and then plateau in citizens' overall willingness to sacrifice rights and freedom as the pandemic progresses. Uh, yeah, so you're seeing some evidence of that, too, although one is uncertain of where the plateaus are. It seems like they differ from state to state. For more on all of this, the matter of freedom versus security and the era of a pandemic, we're pleased to be joined again by Walter Block. He holds the Harold E. Worth Eminent Scholar Endowed Chair in Economics at the J.A. Butt School of Business at Loyola University in New Orleans. And he's a senior feel, uh, fellow at the uh, Ludwig von Mises Institute. Professor Block, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, are you surprised by some of that uh, top-line survey research? Well, no. It, uh, it seems eminently reasonable that the, the poorer you are, the, the more you're going to worry about uh, starving to death. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it seems not totally unrealistic and unreasonable. Right. Uh, but um, in, in this country... Um, the idea that um, there, 
I guess the thing that's uh, surprising to me, uh, forever surprising, even though I should not be surprised by it anymore, is the inability to connect dots or to appreciate the implications of precedence that you're setting. Uh, You like the precedent because it's driving a particular outcome you want right now, but it's a precedent that can be turned against you, too. And this, of course, relates to your uh, one's individual rights as enshrined in our Constitution. It's just that the the educated people that don't uh, see the implications of what they're supporting in the short term. Absolutely right. And I think you're you're quite right to point your finger or pinpoint uh, freedom versus safety. But there's another issue within the safety, namely, you can die of COVID and you can die of heart attack, cancer and whatever else. And if everybody's shut down, I mean, theoretically, suppose everyone was shut down, there'd be no hospitals. A lot of people would die from these other illnesses. Uh, There was this case in Australia where four babies died because they couldn't get to a hospital. Uh, Well, you know, what we want to do is minimize deaths, not COVID deaths. And all too often, the the powers that be are just trying to uh, reduce COVID deaths and, and forget about all sorts of other deaths. I mean, people can't go and get tested for cancer and and uh, people are afraid to go and check their heart because they'll catch COVID and all that. So there are really two uh, trade-offs, one between freedom and safety and the other between uh, COVID deaths and other deaths. And, and, and from a public policy point of view, we, we shouldn't really care what the source of the deaths is. We should just try to minimize all deaths. Well, and, you know, it, right. it, 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 yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we should. But it seems to me that uh, whatever the media decides is the virtuous position then uh, that that is uh, the position that at least a certain percentage of the population takes. And it cowers another percentage of the population that's also in a virtuous position to say, well, I certainly like uh, people who uh, have cancer to get their uh, cancer treatments. And I certainly like people who are of a certain age to get their uh, regular checkups and so on and so forth. But but those people don't seem to be willing to fight for themselves, even as businesses who are shut down don't seem to be willing to fight for themselves. They're all cowered by this moralizing from a small group of people that are backed by the big, big media. Yes. Unfortunately, we have a nation of sheep in, in many ways. There are these people that say, well, if we can save one COVID death, uh, it's worth shutting down the whole place. But if you can save one COVID death and kill 10,000 people from cancer and heart attack and, and other things like that, uh, th- that's not cool. Right. Uh, when we come back with uh, Professor Block, I, I want to get his assessment of uh, something that uh, Victor Davis Hansen said about uh, the revolution that's coming. And it's going to take one form or the other, uh, the American form or the French form and uh, what uh, Professor Block thinks the form will take. More with uh, Professor Walter Block. He is a uh, professor of economics at Loyola University in New Orleans, senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. We'll be right the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're talking about uh, civil liberties, individual rights in the COVID-19 era with Professor Walter Block, the Harold E. Worth Eminent Scholar Endowed Chair in Economics at the J.A. Butts School of Business at Loyola University of New Orleans and a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. And uh, before the break, we're just sort of talking about uh, uh, culturally what's happening in America. Um, You have a revolutionary movement afoot in terms of the uh, 
various instruments of Marxism, whether it takes the form of uh, the squad in Congress or uh, Black Lives Matter, the formal organization on the streets of America. And uh, Victor Davis Hanson, noted historian at the Hoover Institution, he suggests well, we're, we're going to have a revolution and it's either going to take the form of the American Revolution or it's going to take the form of the French Revolution. And I'm sure you understand the implications of what he's suggesting, and I, I wonder which direction you think this might go. I hope we go uh, the American way. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, the French way or the Marxist way um, is certainly uh, devastating. And, you know, we have all these young people that go to college and, and they take sociology classes and they take classes in grievance studies, you know, black studies, feminist studies, queer studies. And they learn Marxism, and somehow they think that uh, Marxism or socialism is the way to go. This is horrible. I mean, socialism has killed, uh, I don't know, 200 million people in the last century, and that's apart from the wars. This is just devastating, an indictment of higher education that, that we're churning out uh, Marxists and, and cultural Marxists and economic Marxists and socialists of all types and varieties. It's just uh, very much to be regretted. Well, and, and that's a key point, too, that, that it's higher education turning out uh, essentially the intellectual leadership of these movements, as we've seen from, uh, you know, mugshots from arrests during a rioting in America's streets. Uh, on behalf of Black Lives Matter, it's a lot of uh, white college-educated kids, isn't it? Yes, and this whole thing with Black Lives Matter, somehow it's okay for Black Lives Matter people to march in their thousands and tens of thousands, and that's not a risk for COVID. Whereas if somebody goes to church or even has outdoor church services, somehow that's not okay. In New York City, they're closing down parks that the uh, Orthodox Jews go to. And then, you know, the data on COVID, you know, they'll, they'll count people dying from COVID if you're 85 and you have cancer and you have COVID. Is there even cases where some guy was in a motorcycle accident and uh, he, or shot with a gun and he had COVID and they counted as COVID. So it's hard to believe the statistics that are emanating from our masters in Washington, D.C. And what do you, uh, I mean, just as a, as a practitioner on a college campus, what are you getting from your college students uh, during this pandemic and, 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 you know, in terms of uh, any insight about how you think this is trending. Is there do you see any recoiling at some of these government overreachers, whether it's respect to people's economic freedoms or individual liberties? Well, I'm the faculty advisor to the college Republican group uh, at Loyola, but we are very much in the minority. If you wear a MAGA hat, uh, you'll likely on many college campuses, you're likely to be physically attacked and not just on college campuses, but anywhere. You know, it used to be that they would be willing to engage in dialogue and debate and John Stuart Mill's On Liberty was, uh, was seen positively. But now if you take a view that if you say all lives matter instead of black lives matter, you're a fascist and we don't want to talk to you. We want to uh, we want to make sure you can't speak at a college uh, uh, campus. I mean, uh, Charles Murray goes to a college campus and uh, he's not allowed to speak because, you know, he, he's, uh, he has different views than uh, the politically correct views. It's uh, in many cases, it's a, a real swamp. Yeah, it seems to me there's uh, some real underestimation of what's happening uh, in in America generally uh, because of the control of our cultural and civic institutions by Marxists. And a good example of this is Tyler Cohen uh, over at George Mason University, an economics professor, and, and I like him very much, generally speaking. But he had this piece in uh, Bloomberg, he writes a column for Bloomberg, that um, uh, about the response to COVID, it, that it shouldn't matter much who's dying from COVID in terms of things like age differentials. He writes, the, the need to get the, the response right, not the relative worth of the young 
to that of the old is the main thing we should be obsessing about. Well, um, yeah, sort of. But how do you make the how do you get the response right if you're not making an assessment of who is particularly vulnerable and who is much, much, much less vulnerable? I mean, under 50, you're more likely to die from the flu over 70. Uh, is where a, a majority of the death has occurred. So so that's not necessarily saying old people are less valuable human beings than young people, but it's saying that this is the reality of what we need to uh, uh, we need to contemplate as part of our response. So it's surgical and sensible. You're quite right. I agree with you entirely. I mean, uh, people should shut themselves down if they're uh, over 75 or 80 or, or something like that, especially if they have... Um, uh, other diseases like they're overweight or they have diabetes or they have uh, respiratory illnesses. But to shut down the entire economy and, and take away the lives uh, of uh, uh, the livelihoods of uh, people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who very, very rarely uh, die of, of COVID and, and very, very rarely even have to be hospitalized. Uh, you know, this is just uh, crazy. And, and it's the same with blacks and whites. Blacks seem to be more vulnerable than whites. And then we blame this on racism. But uh, blacks are more vulnerable with sickle cell anemia than whites, but that's not a racist thing. And uh, Jews are more vulnerable to Tay-Sachs disease. That's just biology. That's not racism. But any nowadays, any time something you don't like, you, you call it racist. Yeah, and, and, um, and sort of this speaks to, I think, the uh, the siren song of the vanguard class, even for some who are erstwhile free marketeers, is, you know, the intellectual set that's, and, and you wrote about this in a recent piece at RealClearMarkets.com, that suggests, you know, we've got to limit individual choices a little bit. We have to have the smarter people make the decisions for for the masses. And, you know, that that is a very, very, um, well, slippery slope. Well, you know, this Gretchen Whitmer of, I think, uh, Minnesota. Michigan, Wisconsin, yeah. Michigan, one of those states. Uh, you know, it's sort of very arbitrary and capricious. Like she'll say, you know, uh, this uh, this type of thing is uh, essential and that type of thing is not essential. So uh, Walmart is essential, but maybe uh, some furniture store isn't. And then uh, even in Walmart or in, in some of these big shopping uh, areas, they'll, they'll close off certain uh, aisles, you know, like they'll say that uh, uh, buying a lottery ticket is essential, but buying uh, uh, seeds or paint is not essential. I mean, it's just so arbitrary and capricious. So, uh, you know, they're not even doing it rationally. I mean, if they're going to buy our freedom, let them do it rationally. He is Professor Walter Block, Professor of Economics at the School of Business at Loyola University of New Orleans, Senior Fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. Professor, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. You're very kind to have me. It's always a pleasure. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show as uh, we close out this Wednesday edition. Something else uh, to think about for tomorrow evening's debate, sort of the thread throughout the show, the opportunities President Trump has and perhaps the way that he should try to seize those opportunities. Another one is continuing what he's been doing to outreach to non-traditional Republican constituencies, uh, in particular black and Latino voters. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that 
it's working to some extent, maybe not to the extent that uh, has been advertised in certain circles, not maybe to the extent that uh, Trump wishes, but meaningful progress nonetheless. And I'm not just talking about high profile cases like Ice Cube or 50 Cent. Even uh, The Atlantic is taking notice. Why Biden Needs Black Men is a piece by Adam Harris in The Atlantic, and he talks to uh, Cedric Richmond, who's a Dem rep from Louisiana and one of the Biden campaign co-chairs. Black women overwhelmingly support uh, Vice President Joe Biden, but roughly 17 percent of black men say they plan to support the president. Uh, The campaign believes it can outperform those expectations by talking straight to black men about the things they're concerned about. May, I'm not so sure. First of all, I'm not so sure you can get Joe Biden or even Kamala Harris to talk straight about anything. But um, there's a lot of uh, data that suggests that uh, Trump is making meaningful incursions into that vote such that, uh, again, states with significant Latino populations like Arizona and Nevada and Florida, that could be the difference maker, Trump's percentage of that constituency. Same thing in swing states like Wisconsin and Michigan, Pennsylvania, Minnesota. Uh, big urban centers with significant black populations in states like Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Biden's 81 percent of the black vote, which is sort of where he is now. uh, That doesn't cut it, particularly when you think about uh, the 95 percent of the black vote that President Obama got, the 88 percent that Hillary Clinton got. David Cantron writing in The Spectator suggests uh, Biden has to turn out minority voters in numbers comparable to the benchmark set by the man to whom he served as vice president. That would be President Obama. Second, Biden needs to garner about 94 percent of the black vote, roughly 72 percent of the Hispanic vote. And uh, even the most the polling that is most generous to Biden doesn't have him pulling down those numbers, particularly in those swing states. And point of fact, in a state like Florida, I mean, he's in a statistical dead heat for the Latino vote with Joe Biden, for example. And I say this again, this is the way I hope it turns out. I really do. The black and Latino support for Trump will be such that you can isolate those segments of the electorate and say black and Latino voters put this president back in office for a second term. Not just because I want President Trump to win a second term, but I, it would be delicious if a growing number of black and Latino voters rejected a party that is obsessed with treating black and Latino voters and other minorities as nothing more than their skin color or their gender or their sexual orientation. To see growing numbers of those for whom the Marxists seek to speak rejecting those Marxists. Thanks for joining us on this edition of The Dan Prof Show. Tomorrow night, again, as I've done with the um, vice presidential debate and the first presidential debate, the uh, last half of the show, uh, we will be taking your calls live. So give us a call with your immediate reactions to the final presidential debate as soon as it concludes tomorrow night. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show.